0: Welcome again, Um, I'm Charlotte Henry, a partner here in our financial services team based in Sydney. And joining me in today's conversations are our panel, uh, who are a a gaggle of our financial services regulatory partners from across the globe, both front-end and back-end, including, please wave, uh, Peter Jones in Sydney. Okay, hi Peter. Andrew Proctor in uh, London, and thank you, Andrew, for attending at uh, an ungodly hour your time. Uh, Hannah Cassidy in Hong Kong, and Harry Edwards in Melbourne, and Maren Quayle in Melbourne as well. Welcome to our panel. Right, well, for today's session, uh, we're looking at the global themes on operational resilience. Peter and I, firstly, will look at it from an Australian context briefly, and then we'll hear from Andrew and Hannah about overseas experiences and learnings, particularly from COVID. Uh, And then from Harry and uh, Meryn about how those things will play out in an Australian context. Um, just before we get started, just a a small matter of housekeeping, Um, you can ask questions as we go. There's a chat function, I'm sure you're familiar with it by now, uh, where you can pop your questions in and we will address those at the end if we get time or if we don't, we'll follow up with you um, afterwards. So to kick off, uh, to set the scene from an Australian perspective, can I have the next slide, please? I'm sure you're all familiar with this slide, once it comes up, uh, which is uh, how APRA has set out what operational resilience is. So just a brief summary, it's typically facilitated by these shock management mechanisms which you see there which respond to the full range of plausible shocks that could impact an entity such as business recovery, contingency planning, crisis management. Um, oversight, decision-making, and planning for maintaining the effectiveness of the operational controls, and then the key disciplines down there for ensuring the design and operating effectiveness of operational controls in place, such as supply management, forward management, and change management. So globally, and certainly here in Australia, the regulators' expectations in relation to operational resilience, even before COVID, were increasing, but these have been described as an evolution rather than a revolution. Uh, The expectations have been for firms, more specifically firm senior managers, to really join the dots across a range of practical risk management and governance activities with the ancillary crisis response and crisis management uh, procedures. So while it was an evolution for a while, uh, I think we all know clearly COVID has been a proper real world test. So ASIC has been focusing on market intermediaries and operators and APRA naturally on the banking sector. Uh, next slide please. So bearing COVID in mind, what can we, we, can, we can learn from that? So ABRA published some learnings from the pandemic. I'm just going to run through these quickly. So first of all, firms must use agile risk governance to manage the end-to-end processes. So firms need to thoroughly understand their business process, the value chain before and after a disruption to adequately cover the required changes to risks and controls. Also be aware of any potential impact on compliance uh, to regulations, have data that is accurate, reliable, and can be produced in a timely manner for decision-making, while simultaneously responding to the potential for increased cyber attacks, which we're going to cover a little bit later on. Uh, Next bullet, firms need to consider a broad range of possible likely disruptions in their business continuity planning, uh, including those seen during COVID relating to overseas lockdown, affecting global offshore uh, providers and supply chains, and the extended work from home situation. Um, With working from home, uh, this has introduced new concerns, including the capacity of virtual private networks to support remote working, security of information accessed in a home environment. The larger entities observed increases in accidental data breaches, such as employees sending sensitive data to their personal email to allow for printing, uh, amongst other items. Um, Also effectively managing and and contingency plan for critical suppliers, the third bullet down. Um, So certain suppliers may not uh, have been able to provide the service they were contracted to deliver, which was a a, a key finding as well. So overseas lockdowns and changes to business operations meant that some third party service providers and captive offshore service centres couldn't meet service level agreements. Uh, To accommodate this, entities had to alter their operations, for instance, by bringing some, some offshore services uh, back to Australia, for example, overseas call centres, is what we saw. Um, so this involved diverting staff from other areas and hiring new staff using ad hoc procedures, which increase the risks. Um, so even after COVID, uh, it seems unlikely that entities will go back to all of their previous offshoring arrangements, uh, particularly as they uh, look to automate their process, which Peter's going to touch on in a minute, um, and reducing their dependency on overseas suppliers. Uh, Next bullet, firms must assess the strategic impact on the operating business models, such as shifts towards wholesale branch closures and onshoring of previously offshore processes that we just talked about. Uh, Firms must implement rapid changes in relation to entities' workforce planning, such as the need for flexible workforce to fill critical processes arising from the failure of offshore hubs, changes to onboarding, training, uh, and all those oversight of work-from-home arrangements. Next, must pay attention to system stability. Entities measures to improve stability through change freezes, so stopping all the different change programs that are in place, and delays to implementation could could result in an increased risk of system outages in the future. Engage in frequent and effective communication with both internal and external stakeholders to manage and direct health and organisational change and to manage financial services and impact on customers, shareholders and other external stakeholders and make quick decisions in relation to customer relief, communicate those consistently and clearly uh, to adjust supporting systems to business decisions. So but just before I hand over to Peter, in terms of what's coming in Australia, I mean APRA started this year doing a comprehensive review of the potential requirements for operational resilience with a view to introducing a new standard are specifically focused on operational risk management and revising other existing standards namely outsourcing business continuity but in September they um, have deprioritized that leaving it till 2022 to be picked up so that firms can focus on their uh, financial resilience. They are also increasing the intensity of their focus on stress testing and they intend to consult on new guidance for entities on stress testing later this year. Uh, and then ASIC also wants to focus on stress testing of manual processes in particular, particularly where those manual processes could be adversely infected, affected by the loss of an individual. So Peter, clearly the role of technology in operational resilience was in stark focus in, in COVID. Um, in the six months from, to, to, from July to December last year, ASIC reported that almost one third of breach reports submitted by banks identified system deficiencies as a root cause for the breach. And it was the second most frequent root cause so what are you seeing?
1: Thanks very much Charlotte and uh, just first I do want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we're all respectively meeting which for me personally here is the uh, Gadigal and Bijigal people of the Eora nation. Um, Charlotte I think you know the issue around technology uh, there's been no doubt that banks have been at the forefront of digitization processes over many years but COVID has absolutely accelerated that um, there's a case of course as technology giveth so technology taketh away and clearly technology risks are present and you'd probably be living under a rock if you hadn't seen over the past 12 and 18 months media reports of significant cyber events, most particularly ransomware attacks, whether that's domestic, so the toll holdings issues that they've had over the past couple of years where there's effectively been three different attacks based on what the press is saying. Uh, or internationally, so uh, Colonial Pipeline or JBS, the meat processors, and if the one thing that obviously the relevant cyber criminals didn't get the memo on was the one thing you don't want to do is get in the way of Americans and their constitutional right to cheap petrol or beef burgers. Um, What we're seeing, though, in this space is really interesting, I think, and just timely for this particular session, Um, the RBA uh, produced its financial stability review a few days ago, and they highlighted or warned around significant cybersecurity attack um, against one of the nation's banks and basically said that, in their view, was all but inevitable. Uh, and there's some interesting quotes from that report, most, most relevantly, um, a couple here. The risks to IT systems from both malfunctions and cyber attacks are rated as a key concern by financial institutions, regulators and governments. These risks have grown as digital platforms and service channels have become more important to economies that are increasingly interconnected and complex, which for anyone who's been acting in the space is a bit like saying, yeah, so what? Um, this has been the case for some time. What's important, I think, though, is obviously the recognition that that is there from the RBA from a uh, from an APRA perspective. Obviously, there are a number of prudential standards that impact on information technology, Um, the most notable being uh, CPS 234 and information security. Um, And that essentially requires organisations to take or to assess their information security capability, to develop policy frameworks, to identify and classify information assets, be that hardware, software, and importantly data, uh, with reference to their criticality and sensitivity. That includes also where those information assets are managed by third parties. And we'll come on to some of the challenges in relation to third parties shortly. You then have to make sure that you have appropriate security controls that are commensurate with that criticality and sensitivity of the information assets and incident management and notification and ongoing testing and audit, all of which is effectively encapsulated within a very grand eight pages of the Prudential Standard 234, which if you look at the cost of compliance with with CPS 234, you'd be multi-million dollars for every single one of those pages in CPS 234. What does that all mean? Well, so CPS 234 has been around since July uh, of uh, 2019, and then the third party obligations were kicking in and there was a a slight deferral to allow regulated entities the ability to catch up uh, on the third party elements. Um, In 2020, late 2020, uh, Jeff Summerhayes at a financial service assurance forum announced or, or launched the APRA cybersecurity strategy for 2020 to 2024 part of which was also a bit of a shot across the bows around compliance standards with CPS 234. Noting, as we mentioned before, the cyber risks are evolving and expanding, the risks associated with COVID and people working from home and the inherent security implications of that. All of these were driving a level of concern within APRA, plus a a view that maybe the regulated entities hadn't been focusing as much as APRA wanted them to on CPS 234. So outlined as part of that was a view around looking at things like uh, independent audit processes to ensure that, uh, again, regulated entities have been complying with CPS 234 uh, and potentially also rattling the sabre around enforcement action in terms of ensuring compliance. One of I think the areas though, and this will come up I think in the conversation particularly from from Andrew and Hannah is this linkage with the third parties and as the RBA identified we are in an increasingly interconnected globally systemic environment when it comes to a whole range of things and technology is obviously a driver. When we look at CPS 234, there are some really interesting interactions uh, when you negotiate or try and uh, engage with third parties around the implementation of things like audit rights, security controls and information flows. And you might well think that those third parties are aligned with that view, and in some cases they are. But the challenge ultimately, if you just put yourself in the prism of an entity, a bank that's negotiating with say, a global technology provider, effectively saying to the global technology provider, hey, we need you now to comply with these additional requirements and we're not going to pay you anything more to do that. You can see the leverage shift that occurs and the challenges in negotiating those positions through. All of that said, um, and it's important as well to appreciate that CPS 234 does not exist in a vacuum. It also links into things that you mentioned before, Charlotte. So the CPS 232 on business continuity, CPS 231 on outsourcing, CPS 220 around risk management. It's important to bear in mind that it is part of a much larger regulatory environment, but what it does show is the increased attention that regulators, both APRA and obviously the RBA, ASIC, we sort of touch on as well in terms of their approach to cyber risk generally. Um, and I think this is going to be a continual theme over the coming years. Um, All of that said, you probably haven't, you probably for many on this call will be very familiar with CPS 234 and you probably dialled in here wanting to really understand what's happening in different regions. So with that, I'm going to throw over to uh, Andrew and Hannah for the views
2: on the uh, the UK, the EU and and, uh, Hong Kong and Singapore. Yeah. Thanks, Peter. And can we bring up the next slide? I'm going to spend a, a few minutes just describing the key international developments around operational resilience. Actually, partly because I think when APRA does resume its consultation in 2022, some of these key concepts will be very tempting. Um, There are three of them that you need to be mindful of. The first is the European Union's Digital Operational Resilience Act, or DORA. It's still in consultation in Brussels, but the broad shape is very clear and, and direction of travel is clear. The second is a pronouncement from the US federal banking authorities in October of last year, and the third is a consultation and then a series of complementary position papers, policy papers published by the UK regulators, the FCA and the PRA. There are literally thousands of pages of text, but actually it comes down to some very simple propositions and all three of them are very consistent in the approach they take. So if we just focus in for a moment on the UK one because that's uh, perhaps at the moment the most prescriptive and furthest ahead in terms of timetable. The first thing you have to do is identify what are described as your important business services. They're important because they matter to your clients or because they might, if they fail, have an impact on financial stability. Second thing you have to do is document them. Literally work out how you deliver those processes to a level of detail that helps you understand what your vulnerabilities will be. And you have to keep those maps up to date. The third is to set impact tolerances. And here it becomes uncomfortable because you have to assume failure. And as a board, uh, you have to decide what is the maximum period of time that you're willing to be without your most important business services. You can imagine at the moment in the UK, people are waiting to see what the competition says about that. But you, you are required to set a time period and say publicly in respect of each individual service, this is how long I'm prepared to be without it. And then finally, you have to take or put in place some strategies to remain within those tolerances. And you test all of that using what are described as severe but plausible scenarios. So in this context, um, the UK has said, you have to have done all of that by the end of March next year. And then there's a period of time you have to make sure that you can actually stay within the tolerances you've set. There's a backstop date for that, which is March 2025, but nobody's in any doubt that the FCA will expect firms to move much faster than that. And in fact, the way the rule works is that you're required to do that as soon as possible with that backstop date of March 2025. That begs the question, what are the strategies? How do you stay within your impact tolerances? And the regulators have given some examples of the sorts of things they expect. They they tend to use very simple examples around substitutability. You branch networks down, then you can go on to phone banking. If your phone banking's down, you go to digital banking. It's actually not as simple as that in reality, but those are the sorts of examples. But more importantly, what's emerging are the kind of things that Peter was touching on a moment ago. It's thinking about uh, what you would do if a key provider was down, looking for another source of uh, another resource actually to provide the key kind of components for your important business services. That spawned a whole wave of new market participants who are just positioning themselves this operational resilience um, framework. It's also meant that all of our key clients are stepping back and renegotiating their arrangements with third parties. The regulators have been very clear that third parties are a key source of risk, but the effect of the regulatory changes in Europe and the United States and the UK has been to shift the balance of power in that dialogue that Peter was describing. It means that banks can now come even to the biggest um, of the software providers and say, I'm sorry, but this is what I'm required to do. In in fact, in Europe, um, so um, pervasive are their regulatory expectations, they have set out uh, some key clauses they will expect to see in those third-party arrangements. In the UK, they've actually been smarter. If you are dealing with a third-party provider who is being difficult and putting you in a position where you can't meet the regulatory expectations, you're required to report that third party provider to the regulator. So no third party provider is going to want to be reported. So again, we're going to have a shift in that dynamic. All of that is playing out now um, ahead of that first key date, which is the end of March next year. So to sum up, you identify the important things you do, you map them, you assume failure, you set some tolerances for disruption, measured as a matter of time, and then you work out what you're going to do about it to stay within those tolerances. Very simple, very strong core that runs through all three of those key international pronouncements. Very tempting for APRA in 2022 to pick up some of those, I think. But before we come back to APRA, Hannah's going to talk a little bit about Hong Kong and Singapore.
3: Sure, thank you. So to pick up on um, kind of Charlotte's opening uh, comments, um, you know, this is an evolution, not a revolution. In Hong Kong, the the Securities and Futures Commission has over recent years been publishing um, a range of circulars on a number of different topics from cybersecurity resiliency, ransomware attacks, uh, to um, data risk arising from remote booking models. But actually only last week, they kind of pulled together a lot of those circulars and a lot of those concepts into some um, uh, guidance on operational resilience and remote working so they've published a number of things they've published a circular some appendices and a a report on operational resilience um, and remote working which kind of picks up um, its regulatory expectations but then also sets out Um, some case examples, so through its kind of thematic supervision visits etc, it's identified what it thinks is is good practice, so it's included that in the report. The SSE probably hasn't been quite as prescriptive as perhaps um, Europe in the UK in terms of um, identifying these sort of uh, plausible scenarios and thinking about how you stay within your impact tolerance but they do allude to it um, when they talk about governance so governance is one of the key sort of areas uh, in this operational resilience circular and, and it talks about um, how it has seen in other firms uh, or, or some firms senior management responsible offices or department heads Um, identifying and reviewing critical functions and systems and updating their business contingency plans um, whenever there's a change to those services, systems or staff. So there's definitely this concept um, of critical functions and systems. The other areas, um, including in the circular and the, the SFC have been focusing on um, around operational risk management so effectively making sure that you have uh, an effective operational risk management framework to assess the impact of disruptions on your operations and to manage the resulting risks. Um, they're very also focused on information and communication technology including obviously cyber security. Um, they pick up on another theme that Andrew mentioned so third-party dependency risk management so are you identifying your dependencies on your key third parties, including your intra-group entities? And actually, the SSC have been particularly focused on intra-group. I think historically there's been a sense that well, if it's intra-group, you don't have to perhaps um, apply so much scrutiny to you know the contracts, the, the contractual arrangements that are in place. The SSC has been very clear that it views intra-group entities definitely in the same sort of way as third-party sort of arm's length um, providers so making sure that you've you've identified your kind of your key dependencies um, and are you evaluating the resilience of those third-party service providers and again managing any resulting risks um, from any disruptions that may happen to their services and then the final area um, that's focused on is business continuity planning and incident management processes so making sure that you're reviewing your incident uh, response plans, at least annually, um, thinking about whether any revisions are necessary in light of any material changes to your operations, the structure of the business. And obviously, I think we've seen with COVID, a lot of people picking up their business continuity plans and thinking about actually um, a pandemic um, as being um, a, you know, uh, unlikely but plausible um, scenario, which probably wasn't covered in, in BCPs historically. Um so the SFC kind of wraps all of this together um, in a number of uh, appendices um, and this report. They're also very focused on um, expectations when it comes to remote working. Um, in Hong Kong, um, we've been fortunate in that we haven't had a really strict lockdown, but I think you know consistent with a global trend to agile working, there is an expectation that more and more people will be working Sort of using that sort of hybrid model, so a lot, a lot more remote working, and again, um, the the standards that they um, expect focus on things like governance, off premises training, outsourcing and third party arrangements, information security, cybersecurity, um, record keeping. So The SFC in Hong Kong is very focused on where you keep your records and traditionally you need to get the premises where you store your records um, approved by the SFC. Now they're not suggesting that you get your flats or your house um, approved uh, as a record keeping premise um, but they are reminding staff uh, and entities that those records um, to the extent that they are being kept off-site that needs to be a temporary uh, arrangement and those documents need to be um, uh, returned back to the approved premise uh, as soon as possible. Um, there's ongoing obligations to keep the SFC and also the HKMA, if you're dual regulated, um, on uh, your remote working arrangements, particularly where they constitute significant changes to your um to your business plans or your or your normal arrangements. The other sort of topic that the SSC has been really focused on in recent years is the use of um, external electronic data storage providers or what we call here, um, EDSPs. And they issued a circular on this back in October, 2019 and some um, FAQs uh, at the end of last year. In a nutshell, Um, The SFC is very concerned about its ability to access data that may be kept with a third-party service provider, such as a cloud um, provider, Um, particularly, I think, in the enforcement context. I think there have been a couple of isolated incidents where they've been unable to access data relating to um, a firm's operations because the firm has said, oh, it's with um, a third-party provider and they're not giving access to it. So... Their original plan was to basically require firms to get an undertaking from their cloud provider that they would facilitate the transmission of the company's data to the SFC direct, even in circumstances where the firm had no idea that the SFC had approached the cloud provider. Now this caused um, quite a lot of uh, angst, uh, both within the financial services community, but also with the cloud providers. You know the way their business models are set up um, you know, often they have no visibility as to the sort of the identity of the information it's all confidential to them it's kind of a big blob uh you know trying to identify which information relates to a hong kong entity they were saying it would be absolutely impossible and also they did not want Um, to uh, basically be um, required to expend, you know, time and money complying with these requests from the regulator. So um, through sort of industry discussion with the SFC, um, they issued some uh, further FAQs, which effectively introduced some alternative approaches to compliance. So instead of getting an undertaking from the cloud provider direct, they will accept as an alternative an undertaking from a senior manager within the firm who will basically undertake to facilitate access to the company's data. Um, And so whilst they're not expected necessarily to have all of the the key codes, the passcodes, et cetera, um, to the data, they should be able to pretty quickly um, get that information and promptly be able to give the information to the SFC. Um, Alongside that sort of senior management undertaking, um, the firms also need to produce an access map and that's actually been a really useful exercise for a lot of firms who really had no idea where their data was being stored. Um, that access map does not need to be provided to the regulator but they can ask for it at any time with two days notice. Uh, and in practice, what we've seen is, um, as part of the sort of the approval process um, where people have been submitting these undertakings, they've also been asking for these access maps. So I think in a nutshell, the SSC has been very focused on Um, governance and third-party providers. The HKMA um, has also been um, busy in this space. They've been particularly focused on cybersecurity. In a speech earlier this year, um, so Arthur Yun, one of the deputy chief executives of the HKMA highlighted operational resilience um, in the context of the response to COVID-19 as a priority for 2021. Um, And just very briefly, Earlier in sort of April of this year, um, the HKMA issued a circular to inform uh, banks about the issue of the principles for operational resilience as as well as revisions to the principles for the sound management of operational risk by the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision. So it's very evident that the regulators here are also looking um, to the global uh, developments as well, um, and are very um, uh, keen to, I think, make sure that they're Uh, expectations are in step with um, the global developments. If you go to the next slide, please, I'll just mention very briefly about Singapore. Um, So again, there is no one piece of uh, legislation or, or guidance note on operational resilience, but there has been over recent years a focus on cyber outsourcing and technology risk management. And just to give you an example, um, earlier this year, the MAS issued uh, revised technology risk management guidelines, which focus on addressing technology and cyber risks. And the guidelines reinforce the importance of incorporating security controls as part of a firm's technology development and delivery lifecycle, as well as in the deployment of emerging technologies. So continuing with the APAC region, I'll now hand over to Merrin for some Australian observations.
4: Thanks very much Hannah. Um, I think it's fair to say as an overarching comment that in Australia while there has certainly been an increasing amount of focus and attention here in recent years in particular, in many respects we're playing a bit of catch up compared to our analogous overseas counterparts uh, who the regulators here will be watching closely and in that regard agree with with Andrew's observation earlier that some of the uh, matters he touched on will be particularly attractive uh, to APRA in 2022 and I think something that we would be suggesting companies um, have a mind to that uh, being adopted here and our regulators following suit. One of the challenges in Australia uh, with my contentious regulatory hat on is I think it's fair to say that the regulatory landscape here is is a bit of a a mishmash um, in terms of cyber operational resilience, data storage and use, privacy concerns. There's a whole range of different aspects that are engaged when we talk about operational resilience and with that comes a range of different regulators. Um, Peter will touch on some more of the specifics in a sort of notification context shortly, but just to run through a few that um, dabble in this area in the Australian context um, and including some of the regulatory and legislative overlay. We've obviously got the Privacy Act, which carries with it um, a notifiable data breach scheme. There's obviously market disclosure requirements if you're in incident territory. Peter's already touched on on APRA and CPS 234. We've got the Australian Cyber Security Centre, Office of the Australian Information Commissioner. Um, And then in the contentious side, we've seen of late both ASIC, the ACCC and the OAIC all weighing in. So I think one of the overarching challenges which results from that is for companies, how, one can identify the clear requirements that apply at a particular point in time against which companies can be fairly held to account at a later date and I think in a enforcement context that's where we're seeing it become particularly acute because while there are various different frameworks in place when it comes time for seeking to enforce those, for example, um, some of the criticisms that have come out of some of the more recent cases which I'll touch on briefly have been that uh, lack of or challenge to identify what are the clear requirements uh, of a company, when did they apply and what is the appropriate standard by which one should be judged. Um, so, for example, ASIC's current case against um, RI Advice ha- has highlighted the particular challenges of identifying what the appropriate minimum standards look like in Australia. Um, ASIC, in that case, is relying on an 800-page expert report, um, and in, in support of their overarching obli- uh, argument sorry, that uh, RI failed to implement adequate policy systems and resources to manage cyber resilience risk. And then the question that ASICs raised that, that they are alleging anyway that that constituted a breach of the general obligations of an AFSL holder under section 912A has raised and is continuing to play out in the courts in that context how one puts some content around what those general obligations in the CORPS Act mean in this operational resilience context and that is one that I think will continue to play out over the next few years because at the moment there is a little bit of a lack of clarity, say for in some specifics which Harry will touch on, there's obviously some clarity around mandatory reporting and the like, but in terms of how that then plays into your general obligations as an AFSL holder is one of the more trickier spaces. It's not only ASIC that's weighing in on this as well, the ACCC over the past couple of years has made it clear that issues of transparency, particularly in the data context, so Rod Sims has commented on transparency and adequate disclosure when digital platforms in particular collect and use consumer data, and that being one of the ACCC's top priorities and again in an enforcement context there's been some cases brought focusing on whether there's been a misleading or deceptive representation made to customers or account holders, focusing on whether there's been an adequate awareness of where the data will go, how it will be used and what will be done with it. So I think it's a bit of a watch that space watch this space. Um I think the observations of Andrew and Hannah as to where we're heading globally um, will be looked at by by the likes of APRA and it will be a continuing, I think, heightened focus by by the regulators here, including in an enforcement context. Um turning, just touching briefly on the governance aspects of it. Um Everyone would know, of course, that directors here have an overarching obligation um, under section 180 of the Corps Act to act with a degree of care and diligence. Um, and Andrew's touched on some of those international standards and what that looks like in an operational resilience setting. Um, and just briefly, some of the questions that we would be expecting directors here to be asking when looking at their governance framework in this regard is who has responsibility? Um, And who has oversight for these operational resilience issues, including critical incidents, which we'll touch upon shortly, um, reporting needs, what's the flow of information, how is the risk, as Hannah and Andrew mentioned, how is the risk addressed in engagement with third parties, which is, like elsewhere in the world, um, critically important here. Key source of risk, as they are uh, elsewhere, as everyone would know. Very rarely uh, would one company be able to control all aspects of the risk, particularly where various functions relating to data and the like are being outsourced. Certainly, a challenge, one that people are aware of, and with the examples Hannah and and Andrew mentioned, um, of, of an increasing focus here. And then, lastly, are, are directors satisfied that they've got a sufficient understanding? and information to be able to provide adequate oversight and direction in relation to operational resilience frameworks and the company's response in the event of an incident. So speaking of incidents, uh, Harry, who I'll pass over to now, is going to touch upon investigations following an incident and the work streams that flow from those.
5: Yeah, thanks. Thanks, So what I thought I'd do just in in a few minutes is sketch out um, a few thoughts or share a few thoughts on the types of issues which come up in an investigation uh, into an incident of this type. And of course, some of those um, uh, issues will be pretty germane to most regulatory investigations, but I think there are some interesting specific issues that are thrown up in, in this sort of context, which are just worth flagging and talking about, um, albeit briefly, and I was going to bucket them into sort of three categories. The the first are just some thoughts around the immediate aftermath of the incident arising, then to look at the medium term, the sort of the investigation uh, itself and some of the dynamics which um, uh, come into play in this context. And then I was going to explore um, briefly some of the key themes that regulators are most likely to be interested in. Many of which will resonate with the types of issues Andrew and, and Hannah and Peter have explained around where the regulatory focus is heading. Um, but we'll tap into some of those um, familiar uh, regulatory themes for, for some time now. So just in in the uh, first bucket, so the immediate aftermath, it's obviously pretty trite that. Clearly, uh, getting the technical experts in the firm in and identifying what's caused the incident and how to rectify it quickly and safely will obviously be uh, very important. But I think just slightly less obviously, uh, looking at the various communication uh, work streams which immediately flow from an incident of this type, it will be absolutely critical so pretty obviously uh communicating with the regulator reporting the incident reporting and keeping uh, in in as real time as possible the explanation of what what you're doing and how you're fixing it will be uh, very important there's obviously the users um, of the relevant system uh, or the customers and providing them with an update on what's happening how it's impacting them particularly acute if, of course, it's causing them detriment on an ongoing basis. Um, But then really importantly, also, I think, um, having a strategy in place to address any potential misinformation that circles around about the incident, particularly in the um, social media environment, having having a, a plan of what to do to counteract uh, that misinformation can be really, really important to avoid actually making things worse. Um, As Merin, I think, has has touched on, obviously, there's the potential for market disclosures, particularly if it involves a a listed company. So clearly, that will need to be at the front of people's minds. And then that difficult balancing act uh, with third-party vendors who are associated with the relevant system. Obviously you're going to want their help uh, in identifying the problem at hand uh, but equally looking further down the track you'll want to protect your own rights against that um, third party in the event that it turns out that it was um, their fault um, that that caused the incident and therefore you may wish to preserve your rights um, about seeking recompense from them. And then I think the other uh, important issue at, at this immediate aftermath stage is just to the, the, the usual things of trying to make sure that you don't make a bad situation worse. Um, and as we've all probably seen in our career, um, the potential for unhelpful documents to get created in the uh, you know the, the potential blame-shifting environment of a of a crisis is absolutely uh, a key uh, feature to make sure that you have those good disciplines in place. And then I think. Uh, before moving on to the investigation, it's also worth just flagging you're in a difficult situation when this these types of incidents happen, and it can be incredibly tempting to readily give concessions to what you're going to do we're going to do everything to fix it we're going to make sure that no one suffers any loss and all of those sorts of things which can absolutely be important parts of an immediate aftermath strategy. but just being careful not to too readily give away those concessions in in the sense that they may well prejudice you um, in the in the next phase try and um, sort out what the uh, consequences of the outage are going to be then on to the second bucket if you like and the investigation itself and i think one of the key features of this um, type of incident is inevitably a great uh, uh, deal of responsibility for investigating these types of incidents will fall to Um, an independent expert, I think just inevitably the regulators will look to um, experts to assist them with understanding the technical aspects of the the outage. Um, And that raises a number of issues from the very simple selection of that independent expert, a bit obvious, but they need to be independent, which can be itself challenging given the extent to which firms will um, uh, have used experts to help them manage these systems in the first place, they also obviously need to be expert and uh, truly expert in the particular system um, at hand, but in any event that's a really important relationship to manage in that investigation stage. Um, Having a good um, working relationship with the independent expert can be very important in terms of uh, how the the firm's interests can be protected. Um, the, The standard that the independent expert applies is, is, is a point that's already been flagged and i think really the, the key there is to ensure that the expert adopts what is a, a reasonable or an international standards type approach rather than any kind of gold plating but that really will just need to be considered on a sort of case-by-case case basis and, and careful thought to make sure that um, any any attempt to inc- introduce a more gold plating standard is is met with a, a appropriate challenge um, as with all of these types of incidents, hindsight bias is, is clearly going to be something that plays a role, and in, in a sense, just putting yourself in the shoes of the independent expert who's come in and been asked to find out what happened, you know, there's a, just an immediate assumption there that something wasn't done that should have been done. They will be looking for that type of um, conclusion to be drawn. So. Um, building in uh, uh, some degree of challenge to the independent expert as they work their way through um, what's what's taken place will be important. But that really leads me to, I suppose, the the key practical um, point in terms of setting up the investigation. And and it really leads back to that, be careful not to make too too many concessions uh, too early on because the protocols you set up, Around the investigation, right at the outset, can really um, impact on how you're able to protect against things like hindsight bias and too high a standard being uh, introduced. So it's it's practical things like uh, ability to attend um, the the independent experts' inquiries, interviews, um, and document uh, requests, the ability to Provide some kind of fact checking as they work their way through the um, incident management. And then, uh, if possible, and this will uh, likely be a, a contested topic, um, some ability to feed into conclusions and judgments as they're being drawn up by the independent expert, rather than um, essentially those conclusions being passed straight to the regulator without essentially the, the firm having an opportunity to comment on them. But those are all um, very practical questions which need to be sort of addressed as the expert um, works on its investigation. And then finally, I'm just going to briefly touch upon the kinds of key themes which uh, regulators uh, are likely to be focused on when uh, they receive uh, an independent expert's report. I mean, obviously handling the immediate aftermath will will be um, one uh, feature. Uh, Touched upon by uh, Andrew and Hannah, but the, the question about how the um, firm has selected the relevant vendors um, to provide the software or, or, or whatever um, technical detail behind the system will be an important issue. There may well be um, situations where there is only one appropriate vendor for that system and what the firm has done to protect itself uh, and put in place mitigants for the risk that that naturally gives will be I'm sure an area of focus particularly um, as the you know the international regulatory scene um, focuses on that issue there will be a clear focus on um, issues around you know go-live decisions if if the incident is caused by uh, a change from one system to another or an upgrade to a particular system and the whole governance that sits around that decision what um, and what what steps the firm has put in place to ensure that it can safely be done, leading to, you know, almost philosophical questions about how meaningful um, extra assurance can uh, be in that kind of situation. And then I think just lastly, there are some big sort of cultural type questions, which I think regulators will tap into when they um, look at what the firm has done to um, protect against these types of outages issues around the degree of challenge um, to executives and to the board, um, the uh, board dynamics, um, which go to uh, setting up project teams and the escalation of issues sufficiently high level within the company for additional resources to be um, uh, given to project teams and the like, um, as well as issues around what audit um, arrangements of a firm has in place to identify issues or weaknesses in um the the systems and the, the governance around the systems all of those will be you know very familiar themes uh, in a regulatory context and i think they'll be picked up um, and the the, the independent experts conclusions will be mapped on to those types of themes um, very readily if there is evidence of weaknesses in those areas Charlotte,
0: Thank you, back to you. Um, One of the key themes from today's discussion um, has been around the challenge of cyber risk. Uh, and although this is a webinar on operational resilience, not necessarily crisis management, I think it's uh, it's been highly topical and in the media a lot about all the different ransomware threats. Um, so our global teams advised on a lot of these at the moment, um, and I want to ask Andrew just to provide a few thoughts on what we're seeing across our network on ransomware
2: threats. Thanks, Charlotte. You remember. Uh, just a few years ago, every so often you'd wake up in the morning and there'd be press reports that 175 million computers in 25 countries had been hit by a malware. But if people paid a hundred US dollars, they could get an encryption key and unlock their laptops. That isn't the way ransomware works anymore. The, these days, and the kind of thing that Peter mentioned, the app that um, the RBA and the regulators in Australia are so concerned about, is a totally different business strategy. And it really is a, a business strategy. These days, the ransomware attackers will go into a corporation and spend weeks, actually sometimes months, just roaming around the servers, looking for information. They'll gather information that they can later use in negotiations, so they'll get personal information, HR files, etc. They'll go looking for the insurance file so they can work out where to pitch the ransom. They'll take their time to make sure that when they flip the switch, it's not just the main servers that go down, but the back, backup servers as well. All of that means that when the attack is launched, um, it's not simply a matter anymore of, of saying, how long will it take me to get back up, back up and running again? It's a question of um, what am I prepared to pay potentially to get back the information that I need, as well as get up and running again? And so pervasive are these attacks and so frequent are they, we're dealing with dozens every year, that most of our key clients have now moved from a position just a couple of years ago where their policy position was absolutely, we do not pay ransoms. to saying, if I want to pay a ransom, am I allowed to pay a ransom? The answer to that question actually uh, varies a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, so the hoops you have to jump through, but broadly speaking, the answer is yes. You can, particularly if the threat actor isn't on a sanctions list, and most of them are not. And curiously, because it's a business for these organized crime gangs, they want you to love them. They want you to trust them. And actually, if you pay a ransom, you get what you bargained for. You get your system back up, you get your data back. And and so uh, that that is the kind of movement into a, a totally different um, business model that we're seeing with ransomware attacks now. What you see on the screen here is a real um, notification of of a a real attack by a Russian organized crime gang named Sodom Akibi. And of course these attacks um, appear without warning. You get this kind of message up on your screen uh, and you see um, you get a link to a dark website. You click on the dark website and you get information about the ransom demand. You get a counter that counts down. And you know you see in this example, the demand was for five million US dollars. So a lot more than the hundred dollars you used to have to pay to unlock your laptop, but not outrageously large actually for a large corporation that's out of action, right? You'd really be thinking it may be worth paying five million bucks to get back up and, and running. It doubles to 10 if you don't meet their time demand. But even 10, if you take things like the pipeline outage that peter described or bringing down a major bank is not a huge amount of money compared to the impact that it can have and you get a little link to a chat bot where you can talk to these criminals and and, and then the communication starts so uh i said this is from a russian organized crime gang named soren akibi you might know them by their street names actually they they had street names that come straight out of marvel comic books like evil core and R evil so they're not hiding uh what it is they do in fact they actually love to publicize um what they do with the money that they get so you often see them on instagram with their latest fancy car when they've had a successful attack it's completely shameless and it's a business i spoke about the the change in strategy and the fact they spend time roving around in this particular case they also sent a screenshot that made it clear that they had gathered an enormous amount of personal information. Uh, it, was, it was employee and HR files, customer and investor databases. Um, and then they um, say that if you don't pay, then they'll, they'll start to release that information in stages. And so you're right into that situation I described where you've got a way up, not just how long it will take you to get your systems back up and running, but what do you think about this information they've got and how much do you need to get it back? If we go on to the next slide, if you don't contact the uh, threat actors, the ransom demanders, they will contact you and you start to receive emails like the ones that you'll see on the screen that's coming up, very polite, actually. Um, And if you still don't contact them, then they will go out to the press and then the whole thing becomes public and then you're negotiating under the media spotlight once you're in this situation there are literally dozens of time critical questions that come up who are the attackers are they credible as i said you know that because it's a, a business with organized crime games you can actually tend to trust them there's honor amongst those thieves if it's a newbie you may not be sure you may need some intelligence to work out how in fact to negotiate with that entity and whether you can trust it uh, what have they got what data have they got uh, they they usually send that kind of screenshot that I described, that's a proof of life, a bit like sending someone's earlobe in a kidnapping, you know, demonstrating you've got the guy, you've got the files. Um, what do I have to tell the markets, as Harry said? What do I have to tell the regulators? Which regulators? How long do I have to tell the regulators? Uh, what do we need to tell our customers or counterparties about the impact? How can we tell our customers and counterparties when our systems are down and our website no longer works? How can we even speak amongst ourselves when our systems are down? Are the criminals reading our emails as we, uh, as we communicate with one another? Uh, if we decide to pay the ransom, how do we buy the virtual currency? Who do we use as our intermediaries? Uh, if the threat actor is on a sanctions list, can I get permission to pay that threat actor? Can I get permission in time? You know, that normally takes weeks, if not months, not the 48 to 72 hours that the Russian organized crime gang will give you. If I decide to pay anyway, what are the chances I'll be prosecuted? Will the board finish up in the dock? Will the individual decision makers uh, who, uh, who authorize the payment of a the ransom themselves be prosecuted? And that's just some of the questions. And you do not have time to work out the answer to those questions when you're under attack. So a lot of what we do now, apart from dealing with people who are under attack, is get people ready for this situation because it's so pervasive. So we're spending a lot of time just working through these scenarios and starting to have people think through the answers to those particular questions. The answer to that question that I posed about how long you have to speak to the regulators um, varies a little bit from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. In Singapore, you have one hour. In the European Union, if a payment system is compromised, you have four hours. In the UK, they don't even bother with a time frame. The guidance is very clear. If you're under attack, you have to tell the FCA and potentially the PRA immediately. And of course, very often in these kinds of situations, all of that decision-making is taken out of your hands because it's in the public domain. Your negotiation, your problems are being played out in a 24-hour media cycle. So that's to give you a sense of how the business model has changed for the organised crime gangs, to give you a sense of how... The, the ingoing position of our key global clients has changed from we don't pay to if we wanted to pay can we pay for that i'll hand over to peter to talk a little bit more about the australian situation
1: thanks very much andrew and look i'm just conscious of time uh, i was just going to pick up on one of the issues around notification in particular which in some respects might seem absolutely pedestrian compared to other international jurisdictions but To link back to Mirren's comment, what we have in Australia is a bit of a mishmash of requirements. So if I go back to Prudential Standard uh, 234, 72 hours from the relevant uh, event or 72 hours from when you notify another regulator, which is both here or internationally. CPS 232 in terms of business continuity, 24 hours. The critical infrastructure bill, which is depending if you're following these things, has seemed to have the gestation of an African elephant. That might end up being twelve hours in terms of notification, or seventy-two hours, depending on where you sit. Mandatory data breach notification under privacy as as soon as re, well, as soon as practicable. Many people think it's thirty days. It is not. It is as soon as practicable. Then we've discussed things like continuous disclosure. Then you might have insurer notification. What about your customer contracts? For example, if you white label credit card services, you're bound to have some form of information security provisions that might require notification. All of that is magnified if you have global operations. And then of course, you may well have done what you should have done and have this lovely kind of disclosure or notification protocol well, that's all great. But what if that is effectively stored on a server that is then impacted by a particular cyber event and you can't have access to it? So all of these things are incredibly complicated because of the different uh, regimes. But one of the key things that was raised was around the legality of payments. So I do want to just in the last couple of minutes, just maybe get Meryn to talk very briefly around the Australian perspective.
4: Thanks, Peter. So touching on the question of legality in the context of paying a ransom. In short, Australian law is a bit of a grey area um, as to whether that constitutes an offence. There are no specific criminal laws in Australia which expressly prohibit the payment of a cyber ransom. However, Technically, there's a possibility it could be an offence under either sanctions, terrorism financing, or instruments of crime legislation. Tricky part arises because to date, the legal position untested. No Australian company has been prosecuted for payment of a cyber ransom, uh, notwithstanding as we've discussed, uh, increasing number of companies making such payments and regulatory and media scrutiny on that. Um, I think the reason we've probably not seen a prosecution, you know, various reasons, both because it is such a grey area and questionable as to whether these laws um, do apply, with the exception of sanctions, which I'll touch on briefly, which is a bit more clear cut, Um, and then for various public policy reasons, um, including the view that prosecution of payers of ransoms uh, might be inappropriate as effectively punishing the victim twice. Um, So just briefly, whether the payment of a ransom will constitute an offence under those laws that I mentioned turns largely on whether the identity or location of the cyber attacker is known, the reasonableness of steps taken to ascertain that, the extent of knowledge as to how the cyber payment, ransom payment, sorry, might be used, and specifically whether those funds will be used to facilitate a further criminal offence. If those types of things can't be identified, it's unlikely that the payment will constitute an offence with the exception of sanctions laws where strict liability um, is involved. So if payment's made to a sanctioned entity, um, those laws are triggered regardless of whether you knew that at the time. And then even if a breach could be established under some of those laws, legal defences might be available. Um, and the application of those depends on things such as the scope and extent of the threat of the cyber attack, the potential consequences if a ransom's not made and the reasonableness of steps taken in response to the cyber attack, including consideration of whether there's any reasonable alternatives to paying the ransom. So a slightly tricky area, not exactly clear cut, but as yet in Australia, Um, hasn't been any criminal ramifications for companies who who do pay a ransom in that context. So with that again conscious of the time I might just hand back briefly to Charlotte.
0: Thank you Maren. so conscious of time so we'll finish up now but thank you everyone Um, for those we saw some questions come through so we will uh, follow up with those questions directly. Just a final plug we have a operational resilience um, hub which has Um, all of our regulatory milestones across the globe, UK, Europe, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, and One Stop Shop, Financial Stability Board, IOSCO, etc. So it has lots of resources um, if you'd like to find more information there, including this webinar will be uploaded there too. So once again, thank you very much, everyone, uh, and have a great rest of your day. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the panelists. Bye.